figure this out. I feel like I have to be perfect. Always on. Always moving. Why, Why is it, is it, it so, so loud? <sighs> I desperately need a place where I can slow down. A space to call home. A home that allows me time to process. To discover who, who I'm, I'm meant, meant to be. be. We were never meant to do life on our own. So I... I, I will be a part of something greater. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. It's great to be here on a Sunday morning in the beautiful snow. Uh, hopefully you thought the snow was beautiful and not walking in the snow or uh, resenting the snow or cursing the snow which I understand as well, uh, can happen here, uh, Sundays in January, but it's great to be with you. Uh, hopefully you got one of these as you were coming in. If you have it, you can go ahead and take it out right now. If you don't, do you want to just raise your hand? I think we've, we're trying to see, we've got some back there we can hand out. If anyone in the balcony needs one, feel free. Jen and my wife needs one, that's great. Uh, you won't be alone. Um, you may be wondering, of course, why you got this. You might also want to ask yourself, what is this called? Um, growing up, I heard this was a Chinese finger trap. Uh, we're calling them finger traps. I actually did some digging to see where Chinese came from. There's, there's no explanation, really, that this necessarily originated in China. What I did discover is that the earliest usage in English we have found of this mechanism was actually called the girlfriend trap from the 1870s, which, if you think about it, could make sense and is also a little bit horrifying, uh, I guess. So maybe some of you can try to use this later to trap a girlfriend, uh, if that is something that you need. But if, you, if you've never seen this before, uh, you can put your fingers in. And the genius, and even what I'm going to struggle with now in front of you, is that the first impulse you're going to have as you put both fingers into this little device is to try to pull them out, right? And as you try to pull your fingers out, Something strange occurs. It actually becomes far more constricted on your fingers. It gets harder and harder. In fact, if you keep pulling and pulling, you will discover you cannot get your fingers out. And in fact, you can almost probably, like me right now in this moment, start to feel a little scared inside. Like something in you starts to say, will I ever get my fingers out of this trap? Uh, the secret, the resolution of this puzzle, of course, is that Pulling and resistance is not going to help you, but if you relax, push your fingers in, then you can find, and here's this one's the challenging one, that you can actually get your fingers out. Uh, this morning, we're reflecting on how this vision, this message, even this life that Jesus is going to offer us in his Sermon on the Mount is going to be counterintuitive. Actually, it might even feel strange. The more you pull, against this life, the more it's going to strain and struggle, but the more that you, you sort of settle into this vision that Jesus is offering you, the more freedom and peace and joy this U plus life is going to offer you. Um, there's a, an interesting illustration. If we go to the next image, any of you connected to Seinfeld? I, I'm, I'll be the first to confess. Yeah, there's a few Seinfeld fans in the house. Seinfeld is before me. 
I'm, I'm sorry uh, to date myself or to date any of you. Uh, my parents love Seinfeld, of course. John Ferguson actually pointed out this clip to me. There's a famous episode called Opposite Day where George Casanza realizes that everything he has done so far in his life has worked against him. He is currently without a job. He is living with his parents. And so he's sitting with Jerry and he says, what if I just do the opposite of my instincts? Uh, what if I just order the opposite lunch? Uh, so he orders, I think it's a chicken salad instead of a tuna salad, and he orders rye bread instead of wheat bread. And interestingly, as this happens, of course, uh, a woman, a beautiful woman in the diner says, I, I ordered that exact same lunch. And so George is sitting with Jerry going, what, what is happening right now? And Jerry says, well, what would you normally do? He says, I, I would never I would never talk to this woman, and I would certainly never tell her that I'm unemployed and living with my parents. And Jerry says, go talk to her and tell her you're unemployed and living with your parents. And so sure enough, George walks up and said, I, I'm unemployed and live with my parents. And the woman says, wow, uh, that sounds great to me. Do you want to go out for dinner? And George, of course, looks back and Jerry says, yes, you found it. This is the you plus life you always imagined, George. Um, what, I, what I do like about that is, is that it highlights we, we tend to be our own worst enemies, don't we? We tend to find ourselves living under impulses and intuitions that aren't actually helping us enter into the flourishing life that God intends for us. And so as we enter into this text together, my encouragement is going to be to listen to where this might actually feel counterintuitive, but could hold the very freedom and joy that we're longing for. To begin, I, I want to take us to Matthew 5. We're going to be spending the next several weeks right here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. If you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone, you can feel free to pull your phone out right now. You'll be able to follow along with us as we look at Matthew 5. Um, I want to start with the opening of Matthew 5, and I want to give you a little bit of background, just because I'm up here, I love background, uh, you're my captive audience, and uh, I think by the end of this you'll appreciate why this background is a little bit exciting. Now we'd be tempted to assume we're just diving straight in. When Jesus saw the crowds, he goes up on the mountainside, he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. You might, in reading this passage on your own, move right along. Yet, here's a few interesting pieces that give the weight of why this teaching, this passage is actually the cornerstone of Jesus's whole invitation. First, mountainside. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew only uses three mountains, and every time Matthew's trying to remind us and get our attention back to Israel's story, something profoundly significant happened when Moses went on top of the mountain, specifically Mount Sinai, and received the law from God. Interestingly here, Matthew seems to be getting our attention that, that Jesus has now gone up on a mountain and Jesus, as the Son of God, is about to reveal to us a new revelation, one that is aligned and continuous with the old, but is in fact a new teaching, a new law, a new vision for the kingdom that Jesus has come here to proclaim. Even more interestingly, you note that Jesus, we're told, sat down. It's such a little note. You may actually be tempted to wonder why does it matter that Jesus sat down. In uh, Jesus's day, rabbis were known to sit when they taught and stand when the Bible was read, when the Old Testament 
was read to a synagogue. Sitting was actually symbolic because in each synagogue there would be a chair that the teacher would assume. Now, I didn't bring a chair up uh, because I am not going to embody this kind of teaching to you. But the chair was meant to represent Moses. And it was said in the synagogues, if you were there with the rabbi, the rabbi would sit in the seat of Moses in order to interpret or literally to proclaim Moses' word afresh to the room. So here in Matthew, every time Jesus sits in the Gospels, it's because Jesus is assuming the seat of authority. Jesus is, of course, not just proclaiming a word from God. Jesus is God. And what Jesus is about to proclaim to us is being proclaimed as king over this kingdom of heaven that Jesus has come to announce. Yet there's one last, I think, beautiful piece of background to this. If you go to the prophet Isaiah, this is going to be Isaiah 2, verse 3. Isaiah is one of the main reference points for Jesus because Isaiah is the one who captures most vividly what it's going to look like when God returns to his people in order to lead his people into a new kingdom, a new nation, a new people themselves. And here, very fittingly, We find Isaiah seeing this day when God is going to return. And what he says is, Many people shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. If you're tracking with this, and I think even in Jesus' day, some would have understood exactly what Jesus was getting at here. The people are hungry and expectant, Because even if they don't get all of it, they know that Jesus has this new kingdom that he's come to pronounce. Jesus, in some ways, claiming to be this pivotal figure of Messiah or King or maybe even God. And what he's about to share is, in fact, a law, a vision, a blessing for how all of his people are going to flourish under his reign. If you're there in the audience or even here now today, this point, I hope you're going, man, I wonder what Jesus is going to say. What is going to be this word that Jesus with authority is going to proclaim over us? Yet there's one last note, if we can go back to Matthew 5, 1 to 2. There's actually two audiences, and commentators have long loved the contrast in these two audiences. What we're told is that Jesus sees the crowds, The crowds are gathered before him. In fact, a lot of commentators estimate that there might have been thousands of people that assembled on this mountainside because they wanted to hear Jesus teach. And yet, we notice very specifically and intentionally, Matthew tells us his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So what's going on here is that Matthew, in just two verses, has set up not only this heightened expectation for what Jesus is going to say, but he's actually already even involved us and has asked us very gently, are you part of the crowds that are here to just sort of see what Jesus is all about? Or are you coming specifically as one of Jesus's disciples? Are you one of the ones who wants to follow Jesus and therefore are going to receive this word as your king teaching you the new law of the land. 
this morning, that invitation, I think, is going to continue to be before us, that we'll return to as well. This is the tension between a you life, what we've been calling a life lived on your own, a life where you build your own kingdom, and this you plus life, a life where you are in relationship to God, to God's people and his church, even acting as a citizen or ambassador of God's kingdom right here in the city for the sake of the world. If, if that's the invitation, without further ado, what is it that Jesus says? Well, this string of sayings is justly famous. Uh, they're going to all center around this word blessed, blessed. And this phrase blessed just as one last piece of context. I know, we're almost there. Indulge me, one last moment of background. Um, blessed is kind of an interesting phrase because when we hear it, it sounds kind of high and mighty, right? Blessed are. Yet, in Jesus' day, I think it's helpful to know blessings were very real things that people with authority, leadership, status, or honor could offer to someone who was dishonored, who had lower class, lower status. Like if someone up here on the totem pole of society blessed you down here, it was very real that they were inviting you up into whatever class, privilege, or status they themselves had. So as Jesus goes to offer blessings, remember he is a king blessing these individuals to join him in the happiness, in the flourishing, or even some translations of the word say, it is well with. It's the wellness or goodness of life lived in this higher status of society. So without further ado, what is it that Jesus says? Well, we might say, Today, blessed are those with the most followers and likes, for they will have great influence. But Jesus is going to, in his first beatitude, say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the first thing King Jesus says. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually tells this same scene, but leaves it simply at, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. What Luke is getting at is that if you are materially impoverished, that is, you do not have enough resources to sustain your own existence in whatever society you found yourself in, you are actually at an advantage. <laughs> you actually have a sense of blessing. Yet Matthew kind of internalizes this, and highlights the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. Blessed are you if you are poor in spirit. If something inside you feels inadequate, if something in you feels like you do not have enough, if you are constantly dependent and open and needy, blessed are you because you will inherit this kingdom of heaven. I think it's going to take a little longer for us to keep moving through these Beatitudes to, to continue to unpack what Jesus is getting at, but we are meant to be somewhat confused, somewhat disoriented. The, the finger trap has stuck. Uh, this is not the way we are used to living our lives. This is certainly not the way that we are used to living in the city. And Jesus is only going to continue. If we would say, blessed are the thick-skinned, for they never show any weakness, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. We move from 
poor in spirits to mourning. So far, it feels like we're going down the, the rungs of society. We're moving deeper and deeper into pain and uncomfortability. Uh, I know some of you here may be good mourners. Uh, in fact, some of you here may live in mourning, like mourning feels great. But for most of us, we try to avoid mourning at all costs. Mourning is uncomfortable. Mourning is overwhelming. Mourning is the inability to restrain the emotions that come or even expect when your emotional life is going to just overwhelm you. Yet Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they are going to be comforted. If we keep moving, uh, we might say, blessed are those who take charge, people who know what they want and will stop at nothing until they get it. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't think if your job interview at uh, the next job you're hopeful to get or maybe your uh, consideration for a promotion when your boss invites you in at the end of the year, wants to talk to you about raises, I don't think the best strategy here in the city is to say, well, uh, one of my strengths is my meekness. Uh, I'm very meek. Uh, you will find my meekness really is uh, really the best thing about me, I guess. And that's because we're not really sure that we want to be meek. Uh, meek sounds a lot like weak. Meek reminds us of sort of vulnerability, this, this sense that maybe others could take advantage of us. Uh, we're certainly not forthright and direct and demanding when we are meek. But here, Jesus says, blessed are they, blessed are you in your meekness, when you are lowly, when you are humble, when you are vulnerable, because you then are the ones who will inherit the earth. Let's keep moving. We might say, blessed are those who fly first class to luxury vacation spots on tropical islands where they lay around all day in lounge chairs on beautiful white, Instagram-ready, no-filter-needed beaches with one of those drinks that have little multicolored umbrellas in it, for they will be satisfied. Anyone want to say a, an under-your-breath amen at this point as we sit in January? But here's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst, the constant perpetual longing, like that daily bodily reality when you've gone too long without food or you've gone too long without water, and you find everything in you aching for satisfaction. This is what Jesus says the blessed ones will have when it comes to righteousness. Righteousness is this great word in the New Testament. It quite literally means right relatedness, right standing, a right orientation and synchronicity in all aspects of life. Righteousness is actually the same word the Greeks use for justice, because justice is, in fact, when everyone lives in right relationship with each other. Jesus says, it is well with those who hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness, because they're going to be filled. We might say, blessed are those who demand much, for they get results. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. To be merciful is to receive something you don't deserve. Again, in the city, I find this incredibly challenging because all of us are working hard, trying to get what we think we might deserve. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the ones who aren't seeking to get, but who are actually giving away 
even to those who don't deserve it, because they're going to understand and receive themselves that very same mercy. We might say, blessed are those who seem to be floating through life, those who have a golden retriever bounding along, apologies to anyone with golden retrievers, playing with the kids in the park, apology to anyone with kids who play in the park, for they shall be the family of envies everywhere. This, of course, describes the suburban life, which you, of course, here have all rejected. And yet, <laughs> yet, there's something to this picture, and yet Jesus is going to say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I find this one to be one of the most challenging of Jesus' blessings. I mean, what does it really take to be pure in heart? And yet, I've glimpsed every now and then, it can't even be an interaction with a child, or it can be one of those friends you have who just somehow seems to hold on to that purity of optimism, that purity of like, things are going to work out okay, I think that's what Jesus is describing here. The pure in heart are actually going to have the best chance of seeing God. They're the ones who will be ready when God shows up in their life in unexpected ways. Now, this next one, we might say, blessed are the instigators, for they make people notice them. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is somewhere between all of our struggle with either passivity or aggression. I think if we were to split the room, most of us would fall on one end of the spectrum or another. Some of us are peace sustainers at all cost. Uh, we are the passive. I count myself in this category. We, we try to avoid conflict whenever necessary. We will accommodate and chameleon and flow with whatever needs you have as long as we do not enter that straining moment when we have to say what's actually on our minds. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, some of us are the instigators. We are the aggressive ones who attack around us in order to test, to probe, to ensure that the people who are with us are real people saying real things in the right ways. Yet here in the middle, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who actually move into conflict intentionally and yet don't let conflict remain. They they compromise, they reconcile, they open themselves up. These people actually are going to be so noticeable that they're going to be immediately identified as children of God. Okay, here's the last one. I know this has been a stretch. There's a lot, there's a lot that Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who respond quickly to their critics, for theirs is the satisfaction of owning someone in an argument. In a social media age, surely this is the way to flourish and to achieve. But Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I personally think sometimes we who call ourselves Christians can too quickly identify with persecution. I'm not really a fan of the like, oh, an insult is persecution. I think what Jesus is getting at here are those who are really persecuted, and some of you in this room might be, uh, but those who, who just by mere association with Jesus are going to find the deck stacked against them. Um, I think way more vividly that this kind of beatitude would have meant something different to those who even now live in other countries around the globe, those who have lived at previous points in history, 
where life was truly threatened to associate yourself with Jesus. And yet, Jesus says, theirs is even now the kingdom. This, this is the reality that they are invited to live in. Now, we've just blitzed through nine Beatitudes. You didn't know we were going to move through all of them in one Sunday. You're welcome. Uh, we're going to keep moving from here throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, otherwise, we would have been stuck here for the next nine weeks. But if that blitz through the Beatitudes has any purpose, it really is to open up this, this final question for us this morning. Why does Jesus give us this picture? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why is this so vital to the start of all that authority, all of that, that anticipation, excitement of what Jesus was about to teach? Why is this the picture of a U-plus life? I think one of the great challenges with the Beatitudes is that as I read them, almost immediately I feel anxious because I feel like, man, this is a, a lot of things that I don't currently have described me, and I really need to get to work if I'm going to like prove myself to be part of this crazy, intense, counterintuitive society that Jesus is describing. Here's what's really helpful and important to remember. These beatitudes are actually blessings. <laughs> Did you catch that? That, that? Jesus isn't saying, you shall do this in order to receive this, but instead Jesus says, blessed are those who, and then gives it to you without you having to do or to achieve anything. It, it's actually very noticeable about who Jesus is and the kind of message that Jesus brings that all of what's going to follow in the Sermon on the Mount, all of the things that you are invited to engage and activate and to do, it, it all actually is built off of a blessing you've already been offered. This already is available to you. You don't need to do anything to enter into the blessing that Jesus is giving. In fact, the more you think about this, the more you realize Jesus is telling us the God that we serve the kingdom of heaven that we're being invited into. This is a kingdom that's actually offered to you free of charge with no entrance fee. God has done everything to ensure those who are living in his kingdom are already blessed. There's no cover charge. There's no cost for you to get in. All that's required is for you to shift out of your own kingdom and step into the kingdom that God has already built and is offering to you. Uh, as I still was trying to get my head around this, trying to figure out what does it mean to do a shift like this, um, I actually stumbled across a term from a sociologist and philosopher named Charles Taylor that I think helps kind of picture why this is so hard to do, why it is that we struggle so much with even this opening teaching of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Charles Taylor describes culture, cultures that we live in, as social imaginaries. Social imaginaries. Now, if you think even just for a second about that term, social kind of makes sense. Social is how we relate to each other. It's relatedness and how our relations are influencing our worlds. But imaginary is kind of a strange term because we'd think it would need to be a verb. It would need to be imagining. But what Charles Taylor is arguing, uh, that I think is quite helpful, is that all of us sort of share in this social imaginary. It's like for you to be an urbanite, for you to live in the city, 
for you to be an American or even a Chicagoan, you participate in this undescribed but very real picture of what life is and is meant to be. It's social, so others are influencing it, but it's actually mostly taking place in our imagination. It's an imaginary of what life could be. If you were to think just for a minute about the last few movies you've seen, or maybe it's TV shows you've watched, the feeds that you have on your phone, whatever those feeds may be, or even just the conversations, the last couple of conversations you've had with coworkers, with bosses, with friends, with spouses, with neighbors. All of these factors are influencing the picture that you hold in your head, the social imaginary of what a good and flourishing life is meant to look like. If we, if we get really honest about that picture, I think all of us would say the picture here in the city of a flourishing life may look a little different for each of us, but we mostly share this similar sense of like, man, if I can get ahead, if I could make some more money, if I could be more stable, if I could own a house or a townhome or a condo, if I could get married, if I could have children, or if the children I have could be successful themselves and flourishing. Again, I'm not saying each of us have the same exact picture, but I think consistently participating here in Chicago means that all of us actually share and participate in this sort of urban American dream. And when we can name that, it actually gets helpful to realize we are so immersed, so soaked in this picture, in this imagining process together with what the world and our culture is saying success would look like, we immediately get stressed out by this different kind of picture, this different kind of imagining of what a truly blessed or flourishing life would look like. Uh, one scholar on the Sermon on the Mount named Warren Carter captures I think then why the Beatitudes start the way they do, why the Beatitudes are uncomfortable, feel like pressure, and yet what the Beatitudes are trying to give us. Warren Carter says, in the Beatitude, Jesus has the disciples imagine a different world, a different identity for themselves, a different set of practices, a different relationship to the status quo. If you're tracking with me, this is actually the invitation of the gospel. This is what we're going to be spending the next eight weeks doing. We are inviting you not just into a list of rules that you need to behave. We're not actually setting on you a, a different kind of pressure or anxiety or expectation. Instead, we are actually trying to do this monumental task of dislodging our urban Chicagoan social imaginary with an entirely different world, a different identity, a different set of practices, and a different relationship to the status quo. In essence, our picture tells us that if we can be individuals, be autonomous, if we can be status-conscious, success-oriented, influence-opportunistic, if we could be self-protective and get to a, a situation where we are entirely stable and entirely autonomous from everyone else, that is when life will finally be good. And what Jesus tells us is instead, in the kingdom of heaven, it is the poor in spirit, it is the mourners, it is those who are meek, it is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it is the merciful, 
the peacemakers and the persecuted. Those are the ones who actually get released from the trap and find the very flourishing that God is inviting them into. Now, I realize we're just at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. There's actually a lot of questions you and I probably should have, even from here, of what does it mean to actually dislodge and sync ourselves up with this different picture of reality. But let me go ahead and just, just close with a couple practical uh, encouragements to you as we talk about this you plus life over the next uh, eight weeks or so, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, my first encouragement is that last week we talked about a you plus life as almost a shift in cultures, moving from a culture where everything is familiar like an American culture where you expect everyone to speak English and drive on the right side of the road and celebrate the 4th of July into an entirely different culture, one where there's all kinds of new languages and customs. There's different celebrations. There's different practices. And you are a stranger trying to pick up the pieces and figure out one step at a time what it means to belong. If that's a helpful picture to you, then quite simply, one of the best encouragements for why we Christians read the Bible, read the scriptures together and pray is because we're actually trying to dislodge ourselves from this picture, this social imaginary, this way the world works into a different story, a different people, a different language, a different culture. As you pick up the Bible and even over the next eight weeks, read the Sermon on the Mount with us. I want to just encourage you over and over again to realize this isn't just an add-on to the life you're already living. This is, in fact, an entirely different story, a different culture. And as you read it, as you ponder it, as you consider, what does it mean to be meek? Who are the meek that I know? Who are those I know who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Uh, You'll begin to see that this different reality, this different culture might actually even be closer to you than you think. Yet, my other encouragement to you, practically, that we've been encouraging these last few weeks, is to find a community to practice this you plus life with. If there's any logic to why we love small groups so much here at Community Lincoln Park, why we encourage you over and over again to find a small group, it's because this this picture of a you life is so all-encompassing, it actually is going to take friends over here to begin to teach you, to mentor you, to encourage you, to wrestle with you over what it means to step into this this picture, this kingdom that Jesus is offering. And then finally, we have this new tool that we are going to open up to you next week. We'll have a slide uh, at the end of our service here with the QR code on it. And this tool is one that we're just calling a U plus conversation. There's a website. On the website, there's about 20 to 30 minute exercise that we are inviting you to do that's a reflection, uh, reflection through uh, like a very simple document on, an, on the website itself. And as you work through this process, it's setting you up to have a conversation with somebody. And if you're tracking, the logic behind what we're doing is that we're actually trying to help you take a step back from both lives, the U life and the U plus life, and just ask an honest question uh, and receive some help from someone else who cares to say, what would it look like for you to step, to take a step out of this you life you've been living and to take a deeper step into this you plus picture of God's reign that Jesus is inviting you into? 
Let me go ahead and pray over us as we turn to a time of communion. Jesus, we know that this kingdom you describe is not actually easy. In fact, some of it is very costly and challenging. Some of us even now may be feeling the resistance of how this, this blessing you've come to offer feels disorienting. It's different than the life we have been living, maybe even the life that we thought we wanted. And yet, Lord, as we move into this time of communion, I pray this whole community over the next eight weeks would be able to step more deeply into your story, into your reality, into your kingdom, that this series of blessings would be a gift and encouragement, especially for those who actually do find themselves being described already in these Beatitudes. May, Lord, they receive the fullness of your presence to them. And Lord, for those of us who are walking alongside them, may we, in communing with you, come to see and love this way of life that you have described. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.